Hi, good afternoon. This is Greg Lois from Lois LLC. I'm the managing partner of Lois LLC. We are 19 attorneys defending employers and workers' compensation claims. If you're here with us today, it's to learn a little bit about Medicare secondary payer exposure in Section 20 settlements in New Jersey. Uh, this is a totally live webinar, not pre-recorded. And of course, as usual, my clicker's not clicking. So, uh, totally live. Uh, this is how you ask questions. Please, uh, feel free to do so. It makes it so much better when people ask questions, uh, during the webinar. Um, we can, uh, see the questions sort of popping up here. I've got a second computer and I'll do my best to answer all of the questions at the end of the webinar. Sometimes we run out of time. Uh, usually we don't, we run out of questions. So please feel free to ask questions. It's really what makes this, uh, so much fun. Um, all right, so today we're going to uh, make the a priori assumption that you're dealing with a workers' compensation case, uh, and there's a Medicare red flag, and we're going to talk about when you can identify those Medicare red flags. Uh, that's something that we as defense counsel are typically doing. Uh, most risk professionals at this point have a really great uh, feel for when there's going to be a Medicare entanglement, uh, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. My goal is to give a sort of 30,000-foot overview of how uh, we as defense counsel uh, deal with Medicare issues and workers' compensation claims in New Jersey. Uh, let's talk very briefly about what Medicare is. It is a government health program. Uh, it's only been around since the uh, mid-60s. It is not anywhere near as old as Social Security, which is uh, a good 30 years older than that. Uh, the idea of Medicare was that uh, it was for it was means-tested, so you would pay into Medicare for 10 years, uh, and when you reach 65 years old and are a permanent citizen of the United States, uh, you would get medical benefits. And at the time, it was really hospital treatment. At the time Medicare was implemented, uh, the life expectancy was significantly shorter than it is today. And it was also uh, it, it was intended to uh, supplement Social Security disability benefits and Social Security retirement benefits uh, to provide uh, medical treatment uh, for retired people. Uh, in addition to the sort of um, normal qualifications for Medicare, that's having paid into it, reaching 65, uh, Medicare also had some emergent provisions in it uh, to provide uh, medical care and treatment for people uh, who were having medical emergencies. And at that time, it was identified as those who have end-stage renal disease or have already been found Social Security disabled, disabled under the Social Security definition of that term, uh, for 24 months. So after 24 months of Social Security disability, you would then be entitled to Medicare as well. Uh, I should just say historically uh, that at the time uh, Social Security was passed and that disability program was implemented, uh, they really envisioned this as acute, urgent care at the end of someone's life. At the time, uh, the number one uh, diagnosis that led to someone being eligible for Social Security disability benefits was cancer. Uh, life expectancy, by the way, was 66 and a half years old when the Social Security program was begun. So it really was not intended to provide retirement benefits and health benefits for people for 20 or 30 years. And of course, today, as life expectancies have increased, uh, the burden on Social Security and Medicare has significantly increased. Um, and that led to 1980, the Medicare as a Secondary Payer Act being passed. And this is really, in 1980, uh, the government started realizing, oh, my goodness, we're running out of money. This thing is not fully funded. And when the Medicare as a Secondary Payer Act was passed, the idea was that Medicare should not be making payments towards medical care for uh, conditions that should be covered under some other type of insurance that's primary to Medicare. And really, they were looking at auto policies, 
uh, health insurance programs, and of course, workers' compensation. In fact, workers' compensation is specifically set forth in the uh, Secondary Payer Act statute, which is 45 U.S.C. 1395Y. So the entire point of the Secondary Payer Act was an attempt to uh, protect Medicare from having to pay for medical treatment that really shouldn't have been covered under that uh, program. Of course, compliance was uh, uh, not really something that anybody really worried about, even though it was on the books. Uh, I can personally tell anecdotes all day long about cases that I put through prior to 2000, 2001, uh, right when I was beginning my legal career. And the petitioner would sort of turn to the judge of compensation at the time we'd put through their Section 20 settlement. And this would be a settlement that would resolve all of the medical treatment in the case. And they would say, well, who's going to pay for my uh, surgery that I'm contemplating or my treatment coming? up. And at the time, the parties would just sort of say, uh, just put it through Medicare. Don't worry. Uh, because at that time, Medicare wasn't looking at it. But then 2001 rolls around. Medicare uh, issues their, begins to issue their memo saying, hey, we're going to start looking at your secondary payer compliance. So that's where we are today. And over the last 16 years, this has really evolved into a complicating factor into how we resolve cases. So today, I'm going to give everyone sort of a big overview my goal is to answer as many questions as I can. I'm looking at this computer. I don't see any questions popping up yet. Please send me your questions. Um, we're going to talk quickly about what is the difference between a lien and a future allocation? When do we have to worry about those things? We're going to talk about why we care about any of this. Uh, Greg, is there any real penalty for noncompliance? Uh, we're going to talk about red flags, uh, when we really need to consider Medicare's interest and when the alarm bells should be sort of popping off in, in your office. And then we're going to, of course, talk about Medicare's response to all of this. How does Medicare interact with us once we've identified one of these red flags or one of these red flags come up in our case? All right. Again, reminder, ask me questions as we go along, and I'll do my best to respond to them as we go through the presentation and at the end. All right. Uh, so there's the big overview. Those are all the topics we're going to talk about today. Uh, your questions do not have to be limited to this topic of Social Security disability and Medicare entitlement interplaying with Section 20. Uh, but, you know, if you've got some Section 20 or Medicare questions, feel free to shoot them to me right now. All right. Let's talk about uh, the difference between a lien and an allocation. We call them liens, but really uh, they're generally the conditional payments. And the allocation is really the future allocation. That's uh, what people call the set-aside. So let's talk about that. All right. In plain English, as we just went over a few slides ago, um, the Medicare Secondary Payer Act basically says, and this is the only thing we care about today, is that workers' compensation is always primary to Medicare. We should be paying first. It is inappropriate for us to resolve the medical component of a case uh, and, of course, uh, that really means in a Section 20 where we're lump-summing, dismissing a case under New Jersey's uh, Workers' Compensation Act, which allows for that, a one-time payment to close every aspect of the case. Uh, we really shouldn't be doing that if the person is contemplated to have a lot of future medical needs and, comma, they're on Medicare or uh, expected to be Medicare entitled, depending on the size of the settlement. So when we are looking at a case and thinking about, let's do a Section 20 in this case, um, let's uh, go through this sort of flow chart. Now, this flow chart that's in front of you is in my book. Uh, I think we're in Chapter 20 or 21 right now of my New Jersey handbook. We start by saying, hey, has Medicare paid for any of the treatment uh, for any of the conditions which are also alleged as part of the workers' compensation claim? And when I say alleged as part of the claim, I mean on the claim petition, or later ruled into the case during motions for med intent, okay? If they have paid uh, full stop, 
we have to consider their interest. We have to consider their interest in terms of uh, what they've previously paid in the past. Those would be considered conditional payments. And then we have to consider their interest moving forward. What if they haven't paid for any treatment? Okay, uh, then we got to look at the settlement type and say, hey, does the proposed settlement in any way um, foreclose the responsibility of us, the employer slash carrier, to provide future medical? And if the answer is yes, so we're doing a, a lump sum dismissal under Section 20 that closes future medicals, then yes, we need to consider Medicare's interest. And that's really the place that we're going to focus on today. This is always going to come up in the context of Section 20 resolutions. When I wake up in the morning and put on my lawyer costume and go to court, all I'm thinking about all day long is how to Section 20 a case. Section 20 is the uh, avenue that we have in New Jersey uh, to full and final dismiss every aspect of the claim without the potential for a reopener. Um, in the last couple of weeks, I got some questions from clients about the ability to Section 20 reopeners. Absolutely. So uh, most cases in New Jersey, something like two-thirds of them uh, that resolve by way of compromise or settlement, resolve by way of Section 22. That's an order approving settlement. And that's where uh, the petitioner is found to have a permanent residual disability. And our future uh, exposure for medical is not foreclosed. And the petitioner has that right to reopen the case within two years. So in those cases, when we're resolving under Section 22, and again, the claimant has the right to reopen the case in the future, no, we don't have to worry about Medicare because we're not foreclosing their future medicals. The only thing we have to worry about is did Medicare pay anything in the past? Every time we resolve a case under Section 20, lump sum dismissal, and we're closing out future medical, we absolutely need to think about Medicare in the future, uh, or, or that, that could be an interplay in the case. Now, not every time is Medicare going to have an interest, but that's when we're looking at the case. Now, we do a Section 20. Uh, let's make sure there's no conditional payments, okay? This is the past payments. This is uh, the petitioner went to the doctor. And maybe just out of habit, maybe there's no maliciousness here, maybe out of habit, they presented their Medicare card. And this doctor, who should have known better, right, because we're choosing and authorizing and directing medical care, accepted the Medicare card and put some payments through uh, to Medicare. In that case, we need to uh, correspond with Medicare. We need to make sure that there have not been any of these payments made. Medicare will respond, and on the uh, screen is a graphic right now that sort of shows you what the um, the spreadsheet looks like when you get it back from Medicare. It is a long list, typically. It looks kind of like a spreadsheet, and it's broken out by a CPD code, um, CPT code, which is uh, the sort of billing reference that Medicare uses. Uh, a lot of my clients, and, and some folks will do this as well, will go through those codes and scrub them and make sure, hey, that we're not being asked to pay for something absolutely unrelated to the underlying workers' compensation case. Uh, you know, you've got a arm injury case, and there's CPT codes on there that are coding for respiratory distress or coding for uh, treatment for flu or something else. No, it's got nothing to do with our case. We should be scrubbing those out, going back to Medicare and saying, hey, take these off these conditional payment ledger because this has nothing to do with my case. Um, that's relatively straightforward. It's very well understood, and it's relatively easy to get that information from Medicare. As I'll talk later, uh, the petitioner can directly approach Medicare. There's a 1-800 there's a number they can call. There's an online portal they can use, and Medicare is very quick at responding to those requests and getting back information to us uh, about the conditional payments. Uh, conditional payments, relatively simple, relatively straightforward. What's a little more difficult is that future allocation, right? Because if we're closing case under Section 20, a lump sum dismissal, we're foreclosing future medical, and it meets some other thresholds, which I'm going to talk about in a second, uh, then we do have to consider Medicare's future interest. And that means uh, any amount of money that Medicare would pay for future medical care uh, related to our case. 
a little bit more difficult now that Medicare uh, uh, pays for under Part D medications, for example. Uh, they are not they're paying for medications, by the way, at crazy rates, not the rates that we would negotiate mm-hmm. their rates. Uh, and that those uh, future allocations are really making it difficult sometimes to resolve Section 20 cases where you know, you're resolving the case for $50,000 on a Section 20, but then we get back a set-aside allocation, a future allocation, it comes back at $200,000. And you're saying to yourself, I can't possibly put all that money aside. It's, it's completely out of whack. Um, so that's a challenge, but that is the set-aside. That's that future allocation component that has to be done. And it's only done in certain circumstances, uh, and we'll talk about that now. Um, uh, actually, in a few slides. The next thing we'll talk about is why do we care about any of this? Well, yeah, this is pure compliance work, right? This is just something that the law requires. Um, in terms of uh, the ex- potential exposure, well, under the Act, the United States can come forward, and this would be the Department of Justice coming forward, uh, and seek double damages for any amount of money that they paid that they should not have paid and that should have been paid by the primary plan. That would be us workers' compensation. Um, more saliently, or actually more typical, is that the Medicare beneficiary who recovered a huge Section 20 and then is still presenting their Medicare card in the future and getting treatment for that will get a termination notice from Medicare saying, hey, uh, you recovered $200,000 in the Section 20, and now you're building all this new treatment to us. We think it should have been covered under your workers' compensation claim. You didn't consider our future interest, and so now we're taking an offset. We're not going to pay your medical bills until they exceed what we think the allocation should have been. What happens then? That petitioner goes running back to their attorney and saying, you never told me this. Bring an action against them. They bring us back into it. And now we're looking at those double damages situations. I can tell you that uh, based on my experience, Medicare doesn't really seem to have a – an investigatory function, meaning they're not actively looking into this until there is, I think, a computer match that's telling them, hey, we, we should be, we shouldn't have been paying for this. Someone else should have been paying for this. Um, I'm very pleased to report that I haven't seen any clients get whacked with this. I think uh, that's mainly because their risk professionals and their defense have done a good job of making sure that they've always met their secondary payer obligations. However, this is the danger. The danger is that the beneficiary gets cut off, and then this then comes to Medicare's attention. And in some states uh, where they're doing EDI and that there is very clear data matching, it seems to me quite simple, uh, particularly under the MMSEA, uh, for Medicare to do this type of matching between settlement and CPT code or injury diagnosis code and then the uh, benefits that they're currently paying. All right, so those are the dangers, and that's why we're worried about this stuff. Uh, just as a quick reminder, questions, questions, questions. If you had any, type them now uh, so I can see them come up on the screen. I'll ask them as we go. All right, next, red flags. When are we worried? When should you be worried about Medicare? Well, typically, I see risk professionals that we're working with, and these are the adjusters and the risk professionals at the various companies and self-insurers we work with, doing a great job pretty much of identifying these red flags. The red flags are, are really twofold. One, is the petitioner currently entitled? And then two, do they meet some other threshold for review? Because there are, it, it's very simple when the petitioner says, yeah, by the way, guys, I have a Medicare card. I have uh, medical uh, benefits through this and I use it sometimes. Well, that's easy, but you know what? That rarely is the case. We always have to ask. In fact, uh, I think best practice right now is every single time we file an answer to a claim petition to uh, send an affidavit to the petitioner saying, I need you to affirm or attest whether or not you are receiving Medicare benefits, are eligible, and have applied. In fact, I do that as part of my normal answering statement to every claim petition. I think that's best practice. Um, 
So finding out if the petitioners are ready entitled, not taking their word for it, right? Because the petitioners will lie to their own attorneys. They might be confused. They don't know. Uh, so that's certainly something to be verified. And then the second threshold is whether or not the overall settlement is over $250,000 on a Section 20. And if the petitioner then has this reasonable expectation to be entitled within 30 months. So let's talk about what that is. All right. Who's eligible? That's the simple one. Okay. You're 65 years old. Boom, red flag, be worried. Uh, there, you have a, a workers' compensation claimant who also has end-stage renal disease, that's kidney failure. Boom, be worried because uh, you probably have a Medicare entanglement. Uh, and then how about if they just admit, I've been receiving Social Security disability for two years, as we said in one of the earlier slides. That's automatic entitlement after two years. And remember, um, Social Security disability is retroactive. It can go back in time. So they could say, I just got it. Or, you know, I've, I've had my adversaries come up to me and say things like, oh, don't worry, Greg. Um, they just got their Social Security Disability Award. They just got it last month. You have nothing to worry about. And I say, well, wait a second. Those awards can go back in time to the date of dis and they could set the date of disablement back into the past. So I am worried about that. And that's definitely something to look into. So that's Medicare eligible. It's relatively simple to determine if someone is or is not Medicare eligible. And uh, most of our clients have matching systems so they can check uh, immediately to find that out. A little more difficult is when we have that situation where the overall settlement, that Section 20, is over $250,000. And then we have to consider whether or not this petitioner also has a reasonable expectation of entitlement shortly. Um, and so we have to ask the questions. And I always do this by way of affidavit. Have you applied for SSDI? Have you applied for SSDI, Social Security Disability Insurance, and been denied? Are you, have you applied and denied and are currently appealing that? Okay, those are things that I ask them to affirm or attest in every single case that I, I handle because I want them to be on the record saying, nope, not me, not, this is not, I don't fit that criteria. And then we ask the questions, are they currently 62 and a half years old? Because that means they have a reasonable expectation of receiving Social Security uh, in, six, in, in, two, in 30 months, right? Two and a half years from then. And then finally, of course, again, are, do they have end-stage renal disease? Uh, do they fit one of the other classifications or qualifications to be Medicare entitled? So those are all things that we need to look into. All right, Medicare's response. Uh, let's talk about how they respond to us. Well, first of all, uh, there's really two aspects to this, right? Uh, in the case where the uh, petitioner is Medicare entitled, the first thing we're asking for is, what is the size of your lien? Meaning, what is the size of your conditional payments? How many, how, what treatment have you provided? What have you paid? How much is out there? I want to know that. Medicare is great at this. Uh, it used to be kind of difficult and it would be a challenge to get it back and would take a lot of time. But now there's opportunities for the petitioner to directly communicate with the Center for Medicare Service. Uh, they can uh, go through a web portal, which is really the preferred way. Uh, your vendor can do this. A lot of our clients use Medicare vendors, and we, we encourage that. Uh, and then, of course, we, as your defense counsel, can also contact Medicare, which means we need to get a release from them so that we can communicate with Medicare and find out if there's a conditional payment lien. But relatively straightforward, and Medicare responds rather quickly. The other thing Medicare does is they respond to requests for allocation uh, that's the future set aside reviews. And we say, hey, we're going to set aside X amount of dollars, Medicare. Will you approve this or not? And Medicare does a pretty good job of responding back to you. They'll give you a nice letter and you can take that letter and then uh, I, I attach it right to the Section 20 settlement document so that if we are going to set money aside as part of the Section 20 resolution of this case, 
that it's all out in the open, it's been put through on the record, and I like to have that um, allocation approval, the letter from Medicare saying, hey, you settled your case for $50,000, we're telling you to put $10,000 aside for future medical, and we approve it if you've got to do that. Um, now, there are review thresholds. Um, Medicare, even if the petitioner is entitled to Medicare, will not even look at these cases, will not even give you a response if the overall settlement is below $25,000. So that's one threshold. And the other threshold is when the settlement's over $250,000, but the petitioner is not currently entitled, right? That means they're not currently holding a Medicare card. They're not currently on SSDI for two years. They don't have end-stage renal disease. In those circumstances, if you meet that threshold, they will also respond. Um, Medicare simply expects compliance with the law uh, in terms of how they're interacting or policing this. Uh, we, we don't really see any uh, targeted enforcement or investigation directly by Medicare. There are reported decisions nationally where Medicare has asserted its right and then come at forward for a penalty. Interestingly, they appear to be uh, largely as a result of other litigation or other investigations that are being done, typically in a whistleblower context or an employment context. Um, and then finally, those consent letters from Medicare, uh, all of them say, uh, hey, this consent letter is contingent on you providing to us the final paperwork, the approved settlement after the workers' compensation judge signs it. So after that, they give you a, a period, it's usually 60 days or 30 days, to then take all of the settlement documents and then forward them to Medicare for them to uh, give their sort of final blessing or approval. All right, so that's uh, sort of the big 30,000-foot overview of the Medicare secondary payer obligation. Of course, this obligation is coming into play when we have Section 20, and this is really the time when I think you need to be leaning on your defense counsel and, of course, the risk professionals to be identifying these red flags uh, and be moving those cases uh, towards a Medicare approval uh, or a conditional payment statement, depending on the case. All right, or both. Uh, certainly, I've got many cases in which we do both. All right, uh, please, I'm looking for some questions here. Okay, coming over to the uh, the side computer. Let me move it here a little bit. Good. All right, uh, what entity, I have one from Arlen who says, uh, what entity is the Medicare set-aside paid to, Medicare itself or to the petitioner? What if happens to any amount that's never used? Okay, awesome question, Arlen, and I'm going to get a little bit trite here and tell you a little bit of a joke. First of all, they're all getting paid, typically, unless they're structured as an annuity. But even in those cases, they're getting paid directly to the petitioner, okay? These are what we call self-administered set-aside accounts, and that's 99.9999% of them. So this means that the petitioner is getting, really, two lumps of money in a Section 20 settlement. Let's say the $50,000 uh, Section 20 uh, lump sum dismissal, and that's resolving all the indemnity exposure, any unpaid medicals, any, any uh, lost time that they're alleging they should have been compensated for, et cetera. Every issue in the case, plus the future medicals. Plus, they're getting this other pile of money, uh, let's say $10,000, that they're supposed to self-administer. And I, if, you, if you're listening to this on our podcast or through iTunes, I'm doing air quotes here, everybody. I'm doing lots of big air quotes. They're supposed to set that aside and only use it for their future medical treatment. What do they really do? I think they just take use it just like they use their Section 20 money. They go down to Atlantic City. Uh, actually, somebody said, Greg, that's a very dated reference. Now everyone goes to Foxwoods now. Uh, they, go, they, they go and, you know, they gamble it or buy beer and cigarettes with it. Uh, as far as I've seen, I haven't seen any sort of enforcement uh, from Medicare or anybody saying what people actually do uh, with their set-aside money, but it's typically self-administered. Um, the 
A little caveat to that is oftentimes we'll, we'll structure that. So we'll annuitize that future uh, allocation. So that $10,000, maybe we'll get uh, some seed money of $1,000 today and then $500 a year for the next 20 years, something like that. Again, how they self-administer those funds and what they do with them, nobody's following up on that. The second part of your question, Arlen, was what happens to any amount that's never used? Well, I, I think they're going out and buying, you know, uh, bass fishing boats and weekends at Foxwoods and other things. It never returns to us. Uh, it's just kept by the petitioner. Okay, so I hope that was responsive, Arlen. All right. Um, Maureen asked a question. Greg, if we have a denied claim that we are looking to resolve via Section 20, do we need to address Medicare liens? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. If the petitioner is Medicare entitled and you've got a denied workers' compensation case, I would be absolutely adjusting those, addressing those conditional payments. Now, typically, the way I would be resolving them is saying, hey, we resolved your denied workers' compensation case for $2,000. We found you've got $500 of lien, of conditional payments. It's those conditional payments come out of your dollars. You pay them back. But that way we're cleaning it up and there's no problem in the future. Okay. And then, uh, Steve asked a question. Can a judge require that a Medicare set aside allocation be submitted to CMS? No, absolutely not. Um, uh, so me- even Medicare doesn't require it. They just say, uh, hey, we're not going to respect or uh, uh, give you a safe harbor if we haven't pre-approved that allocation. So you absolutely uh, can settle the case first and then let Medicare know about the uh, allocation that you've done. Uh, and there is no need to have them actually approve allocations. This, but you don't get the benefit then of their safe harbor. Um, you know, the, the whole point of having them bless that, uh, allocation is that it doesn't come back in the future if later on it's determined not to be enough money. And that's really what we're talking about here. Um, so no. Does a workers' compensation law judge, now workers' compensation law judges, they have like this interesting dual role in these proceedings in that, um, they're here to make sure that the case, they're at, when the section 20 approved, the workers' compensation law judge in New Jersey uh, sort of has a paternalistic role to make sure that the petitioner is agreeing to something they understand, that it's voluntary, and that there are not um, contingencies out there that can uh, harm the petitioner. The entire settlement is supposed to be understood by all parties. So the workers' compensation law judges will sometimes say, like, I'm not approving this because the allocation uh, hasn't been approved by Medicare. And really, the reason they're saying that is because from the petitioner's point of view, that petitioner is taking on some risk the risk of maybe someday in the future that allocation's not found to be enough money. But does the law judge actually have the power or the authority to require that allocation? No, there's nothing in the Workers' Compensation Act or the case law that would say a a law judge uh, either can or cannot uh, approve a settlement simply because an allocation has not been approved by uh, Medicare. I think a law judge can say, uh, let me see the allocation. Has it been done? And is it being funded? And that's really the extent of their authority over that question. Uh, and so that might take some education if you have a workers' compensation law judge saying, I'm not approving, or she's saying, I'm not approving these settlements uh, because Medicare hasn't given you that uh, approval allocation letter. That's not what the law actually requires. So that would be maybe some an opportunity to do some education. But, but let's remember that in New Jersey, 
the workers' compensation law judge has a ton of discretion. It's extraordinarily uh, 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 within their power to either approve or deny a Section 20. So if you've got a judge, and this comes down to also just knowing the judge, you've got a judge who never puts them through without the allocation being blessed, you know, getting that letter back from Medicare saying, hey, if everything is true as you've told us, we're going to approve this allocation. for practical purposes, uh, you probably get it approved if you can. The problem with getting them approved with Medicare, as everyone knows, is it takes time and it increases expenses. That's the challenge. That's the flip side of that. Uh, but really, I think if the question is, uh, are you required to submit them uh, to, to the Center for Medicare Services, the answer is no, absolutely not. The law does not require it. It just says you have to consider us and you have to uh, allocate appropriately or you're open to risk and so could the petitioner be. Okay. All right. So I'm scrolling through here. That's it. Last question was from Steve. If anybody has any further questions, please feel free to reach out to me. Um, I just want to remind everyone that uh, this is, I think, chapter 21 of my New Jersey book. That's our substantive handbook. I also write the New Jersey practice guide for LexisNexis. Um, you know, these webinars are a little bit of what we do. We do a lot more here in terms of training. Uh, we do customized training for our clients as well. So if you think you would benefit from that, please reach out to me. Um, Our website has 12 to 15 new articles on workers' compensation, New York, New Jersey, every month. Uh, Next month, our topics for the webinar are reopeners. And that, again, is going to, we're going to talk about Section 20s during that because every reopener really should be steered towards that Section 20 lump sum dismissal. And then we're going to talk about post-trial practice and appeals. And appeals, frankly, are a very small part of what goes on in workers' compensation in New Jersey. It's 1% or 2% of my practice, uh, but reopeners are are big. Uh, Something like one in three cases comes back on reopener. And then in March, we're going to be talking about New Jersey's second injury fund and how to get contribution from the fund or how to fight off a finding of total disability. So please join us for that. Okay, uh, I think that's everything. Um, See you next month.